0: You are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland, Maine, and broadcast on 1310 AM Portland, streaming live each week at 11 AM on wlobradio.com and available via podcast on drlisa.org. Today is September 25th, 2011. Thank you for joining us. here are some highlights from this week's show.
1: The field of public health is so broad and we look at the health of a population and what makes people healthy, what keeps people healthy. We look at income and education and jobs and community supports. and There are so many things that go into making and keeping people healthy and public health looks at all of those things. Since about 1970,
2: in the United States, we've been getting our information from some centralized authority whether that's a government authority or some medical authority. And that centralized authority is trying to come up with one way of treating everybody. One diet for 240 million people.
3: To me, the word harvest also has a connotation of community and people sort of working together. um, And that's what we're all about at Preble Street as well. Support for the Dr. Lisa
0: Radio Hour and podcast is generously provided by Akari Salon, Maine Magazine, Robin Hodgkin of Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, Whole Foods Market, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin from Remax Heritage, and Tom Shepard from Hersey Gardner Shepard and Eaton Prize.
4: This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. Today is September 25th, 2011, and our theme today is Harvest. My goal as a physician and a mother is to see individuals making healthy personal choices and thriving in the community because their well-being has a ripple effect. Everything is interconnected. One person's health is my health and yours. If we want a better world, that's where we have to begin, with ourselves. Joining me in the studio today, as always, is our co-host Genevieve Morgan, Wellness Director for Maine Magazine. On today's show, we have conversations with Julie Alfred Sullivan, the Public Health Director for the City of Portland. We also talk with Dr. Richard Maurer, a naturopathic physician at Coastal Naturopathic Center in Falmouth, Maine, and with Mark Swan, the Executive Director of Preble Street in downtown Portland. We hope you will enjoy our program on Harvest as we enter into this autumn season. Thank you for listening. So one of our segments every week is about food and nourishing ourselves, feeding ourselves. Um, when patients come into my office, food is an, a very important topic. It's And it's not just food from a physical standpoint. It's food from an emotional, spiritual, um, intellectual standpoint. We talked about that last week on our Beginnings show, on the September 18th show. So I have Jen Morgan in the studio with me again, Jen, as we... Keep Reminding People is our wellness editor for Maine Magazine and does our Maine Magazine Minutes. I know food is particularly important to her, and she's going to be speaking with Dr. Richard Maurer later on in the show about food. Um, But today we're going to focus on a few actual food choices.
5: I see you have some delicious-looking products over there.
4: Yes, delicious indeed, and local, because they all came from the Whole Foods Market here in Portland, Maine. They sponsored this segment um, and let us pick through and look at their locally grown foods. So what's interesting to me is we have food you might not consider to be local. For example, we have these lovely red rocket peppers from the Little River Farm in Buxton. Um I, you think of these as sort of Mexican or hot or spicy, and and really they can be grown anywhere. So we'll talk a little bit more about the peppers and the health benefits of these, but we also have a few other items. We still have blueberries. These are wild Maine blueberries. These came through the Stone Set Farm in Brooklyn, and we have some tomatoes from backyard farms in Madison, Maine. Um, what's great is that these are all things that you can do. You can eat these foods and stay healthier than you would be if you didn't eat these foods. I guess that's a silly thing to say, but, you know, the the world is so busy and fast paced. And we forget that there are simple things that we can do to stay balanced. And I like to think about food as medicine. And and that's, I can't remember which famous person said this, but let food be your medicine and medicine be your food. This is something that we talk about all the time in my office. And on a daily basis, almost we're getting research coming out that's showing us about the benefits of eating healthy food. And I have in front of me spirituality and health magazine.
5: You write for that magazine, don't you?
4: I do write for this magazine. Actually I write for their online blog right now. Um, and we'll connect you through at drlisa.org. And what's interesting is that I opened this magazine up, and I believe this is the... Which uh, this, was, this was the July and August issue. I guess it takes me a little while to <laughs> actually read my magazines. But anyway, it was funny because there were three things that I was really interested in. One of them was a study out of the Harvard School of Public Health in Boston that showed that men and women who eat berries on a regular basis may have a lower risk of developing Parkinson's disease. Wow, that's fascinating. Well, it is fascinating. And it's, a fa- it's especially fascinating because actually it's even more important in men than in women. And men tend to be a little bit more uh, challenging from a health standpoint. Um, you know, men—they don't—they aren't necessarily as into their health as women. Studies have shown.
5: I think that's true. Mm-hmm.
4: So what, the reason why these berries are so important is because they have uh, flavonoids in them, antioxidants, which are also found in tea, red wine, chocolate, and citrus fruit. And the people in this study were followed uh, for 20 to 22 years. And the top 20% of flavonoid consumers were 40% less likely to develop Parkinson's. And this is so interesting. So um, we have Maine berries, locally grown, Whole Foods market. Such an easy way to get these flavonoids into your diet. Sprinkle some cereal. They taste delicious. They taste delicious. Absolutely. And another thing that tastes delicious are these backyard farms, uh, tomatoes. Now on the WLOB segment that we've done for the past couple of years, we've talked about lycopene and prostate cancer. Um, That's just one of the substances that we find in tomatoes. We also uh, are finding that tomatoes are good in addition to preventing a lot of chronic diseases such as cataracts. These lately have been shown to have and have lipid lowering effects, which means that they're counteracting the cholesterol in your blood. And they're showing that people who eat more tomatoes are less likely to develop vascular disease. And the important thing about vascular disease is that it's sort of a silent killer.
5: And isn't cardiovascular disease one of the top four killers in the country?
4: Yeah, heart disease is one of the top killers. And vascular disease, which uh, tends to be people, if you get a heart attack, you do have vascular disease. Your, va- your The vascular disease is um, it's related to your blood vessels. Mm-hmm. So you can have a buildup of these cholesterols and fats in your blood vessels. And so we know that if you have a buildup of fat in your heart and you get a heart attack, then that's obviously you have vascular disease in other parts of your body. There are people who don't get to the place where they actually will have a heart attack. They'll just end up having... Um, what we call vascular insufficiency, and they'll have pain in their legs, or they won't, you know, the blood won't flow back and forth quite as well. They'll get swelling in their legs. And we know that over time, people who have vascular disease are likely to, to also develop heart attacks and possibly dementia. In your practice, Lisa, do you see that
5: you're able to help people control cardiovascular disease with, with food and acupuncture and more natural methods? Have you, is that something that that lifestyle and diet helps? fix.
4: If you can do it from a preventive standpoint, um, you're even better off, you know, primary prevention. But we talk about secondary prevention and tertiary prevention. You sort of get in there after the fact. And yeah, diet, lifestyle. We teach Qigong. Um, I do acupuncture with people, which is, helps with stress. And all of these things can contribute to lowering one's risk of vascular disease, heart disease. Um,
5: in the article I just uh, published in Main Magazine with Dr. Maurer, who we're going to be talking to later, I actually saw in the CDC uh, reports about our state that cardiovascular disease is one of the top problems for the state of Maine. Yeah. So for everyone listening out there, it's really interesting that what you're saying, that, that it's in your own power to help alleviate symptoms of cardiovascular disease through diet, through people like you.
4: <laughs> right. It It is. It's absolutely in your own power. And I think sometimes this is one of the things that we worry about with healthcare is we feel powerless. We feel like we're um, at the whim of our local clinic. We can't get in to see our doctors. You know, we, we need a pill, we need a quick fix, but it really, it starts far beyond, far before you get to the doors of your doctors. You know, it's starts with a tomato, starts with, a tomato, starts with some <laughs> berries. Um, also, you know, an interesting thing that came out of spirituality and health this month is um, talks about coffee preventing against diabetes. And again, we know diabetes, obesity, those are both, both risk factors for heart disease. And um, we in the Portland area like to go over to Bard Coffee and that's a other locally local establishment. We love the people at Bard. Hi, Jeremy. And um, if, you're, if you're having your daily cup of coffee, maybe not more than that, then you're going to have protective effects against diabetes and also prevent heart disease. That's so great. I actually have a nice coffee from Bard
5: behind me right now.
4: (laughs) Well, there you go. So again, locally grown. We have the berries, we have the backyard farm tomatoes, a little bit of coffee. And actually there are a lot of things that we talk about on the website that sort of just give you sort of the ground floor entry into health. I spent a lot of time exploring health over the last few years on my blog. I write more about spiritual health now, but this is really where I started when I was um, coming into Chinese medicine and integrative medicine, was, was talking about how we feed ourselves and how we feed ourselves from a physical standpoint. So this is one of the reasons why we focused on health so early on. And in fact, when we go on WLOB every week on our Thursday segments at 6.50 in the morning, we bring in our basket of fun. We bring in our locally grown foods. We talk about how we prepare them, and we give people tools they can use. Which and is you can find some of your recipes on our website. Am I right? Yes, absolutely. Um, you can find them on our website. You can find them in the e-news. We talk about, we talk about food and eating on the Farmer's Almanac, Almanac online, which is another um, that's another publication that we write for. So we're we're out there, we're spreading the spreading the message of health and nourishment and eating and foods. Planting the seeds for harvest. <laughs> exactly. It's all about harvest. So, Jen, thanks so much for having this great conversation with me today. Thanks for joining us on this segment and we'll be back again in a minute.
0: This segment of the Dr. Lee's the Radio Hour has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market of Portland, Maine. Whole Foods Market, where you will find the highest quality natural and organic products available. Follow them on Facebook and go to wholefoodsmarket.com to learn more about their whole foods, whole people, whole planet
2: vision.
4: So, our featured guest today is Julie Sullivan, the Public Health Director for the City of Portland, and Today, we're talking for a theme. We're talking about harvest and about reaping what you sow. And that has multiple connotations, which we've discussed in our earlier introduction. I'm sitting here with Genevieve Morgan, wellness editor for Maine Magazine. Good Hi, morning, Lisa. Jen. Hello. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about Julie, and then we're going to get started. Julie's a dear friend of mine. I've known her for a while. She is the public health director for the City of Portland, overseeing a nearly $6 million budget with more than 100 staff in five program areas. Under her leadership, the health department doubled grant revenues while decreasing general fund reliance by 15%. Previously, Julie was the health promotion program manager and started the city's first minority health and community health outreach worker initiatives. Before moving to Maine, Ms. Sullivan served as project director for a $3.3 million Department of Justice demonstration grant for children exposed to violence at the Chicago Department of Public Health. Ms. Sullivan earned MBA and MPH degrees from the University of Illinois at Chicago and a BA in history from Northwestern University. I'm impressed. So am I. Lots of, lots of things that you've done in your life, lots of degrees that you have. Um, and you know that I have a master's in public health myself, so this is very dear to my heart. And I know that Jen is wondering, and the rest of us as well, what, what is public health? And what does this have to do with wellness? What does it have to do with medicine? What's the intersection? Tell us, Julie.
1: Well, public health, I think, is something that's very hard for people to define. I think most often people think of public health as perhaps health care for poor folks, um, maybe immunizations, a flu shot is something that's often connected with public health. But um, the field, what's always been interesting to me about it, the field of public health is so broad. And we look at the health of a population and what makes people healthy, what keeps people healthy. We look at income and education and jobs and community supports. And there are so many things that go into making and keeping people healthy, and public health looks at all of them things whereas medicine is very focused on individuals and the the needs that they present um, to an individual practitioner and an individual moment in time and we really look at um, the prevention factors and all the, the assets that are in place in communities to make and keep people healthy.
4: So we are talking about wellness on a much bigger scope we're talking about well the wellness of the family the wellness of the community and really the wellness of the country and the world honestly if you look at the world health organization that's public health on a global absolutely so i know that one of your projects recently has been portland defending childhood and i'd like you to speak a little bit more about that
1: Um, it's a a new award from the Department of Justice and looking at uh, the impact of children's exposure to violence and it's something that most people really aren't aware of especially when you look at very young children maybe ages zero to five um, who might be witnessing some domestic violence in the home Um, many folks might assume that a a baby is too young to really get it to really have any sort of negative impact from that Um, or that a a toddler or preschooler is sleeping and didn't hear it Um, and what unfortunately what we find most often is that especially with domestic violence which is most often chronic and not just a one-time thing, that there's a pretty severe impact or there can be on a developing brain. And that um, often when these children come to school, it's the first time anybody's noticing that there might be some challenges for that kid. Um, And they have a hard time sitting still and paying attention in school and things begin to snowball from there. Um, And so we want folks to know that there is an impact when children are witnessing violence um, and that there are signs to look for um, when a kid is struggling and that there are supports in the community available to children and families. to seek services when they need them.
4: So what are those signs? If if I'm a teacher or a social worker or a community member or even even a parent, perhaps a a co-parent in a situation where I don't have my child full-time, what signs am I looking for?
1: Um, With little kids, it's it's a short list of symptoms because they only have limited ways of expressing themselves, so often it's regression in toilet training, problems sleeping, um, kind of maybe odd complaints um about a headache or a stomach ache um so a lot of there's sort of non-specific signs um but it's certainly violence in the home or violence in the community is one thing to look for um and as you know we have a growing number of uh, refugees who have been through unbelievable trauma in their country of origin and so they're coming here and those kids have seen things and witnessed things and been directly affected by things that we can't that thankfully we can't even really understand, and so we're building capacity as well to deal with that kind of trauma too.
4: And I, I read the percentages: fifteen percent, fifteen percent of our city's population is a minority.
1: Yes, I mean Maine is still, of course, one of the whitest states in the country, um, but Portland is is not at the same rate as the state at all, um, and we have increasing numbers, um, uh, certainly from all uh, all sorts of different countries in Africa, um, but also from Afghanistan and Iran, and you know very large families that have been through. Very serious drama coming here.
4: So we've been talking about sort of the, the 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 negative aspects of violence, whether it's violence coming from a different country, violence in the home if you're from the United States, but and that's all about reaping what you sow. You know, you something happens early on and then later on you see an impact. Tell me about the things that the city has to offer that actually can change things for the better. So you're actually so we're talking about harvest and abundance and I know that you spend so much money right now to try to get people healthier. Tell me what types of things you're doing.
1: Um, I would start with our maternal and child health nurse home visitors, um, which is part of the Maine Families Program. Um, and a home visiting, um, a series of home visits are offered to every first time parent in the state of Maine. And our nurses um, visit families in Portland. And so they're able to help new parents adjust to having a new baby. And anyone who's had a new baby knows that it's there is little that can really prepare you for that. And so there's lots of assistance in that transition, and also in breastfeeding, and making sure that the baby is developing appropriately Um, and we also do some parenting support groups um, and infant and toddler play groups which are great ways for parents to get support from one another as well as from our nurses um, and for the kids to play together which is always a good thing Um, and we also have six school-based health centers Um, so we're in most of the schools in Portland um, all three high schools um, and uh, King Middle, and um, across some of the elementary schools as well. And that's a great way to provide um, additional medical services for kids who need them in the school. Um, some of the assistance is managing chronic disease, but um, also with the older kids, there's reproductive support um, and mental health and, and dental services. Um, and you do work with immunizations? Mm-hmm. Tell me about the immunizations. We do. Um, Our India Street Clinic provides every immunization you need uh, at a very low cost or no cost. Um, and we also connect with our, our school-based partners um, to be providing flu clinics for kids as well um, to make that as accessible as possible. We allow um, younger siblings to come into the school and get those shots as well when we do our flu clinics.
4: And you told me there's a travel clinic as well?
1: There is a travel clinic. Um, we want to support people being healthy no matter where they go. We know that getting... The required shots to travel to different parts of the world can be prohibitively expensive, and so we are able to provide, I believe, everything um, that is needed um, at a much more reasonable cost. And that helps us to be able to provide services for those who can't pay as well.
0: We'll return to our interview with Julie Sullivan in just a moment. This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Akari Salon, an urban sanctuary of beauty, wellness, and style, located on Middle Street in Portland, Maine's Old Port. Follow them on Facebook or go to AkariBeauty.com to learn more about their new boutique and Medispah. And by Robin Hodgkin, Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor at Morgan Stanley Smith Barney in Portland, Maine. For all your investment needs, call Robin Hodgkin at 207 771 0888. Investments and services are offered through Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC member, SIPC. And now back to our interview with Director of Public Health for Portland, Julie Sullivan.
4: And you've also, we've talked about immunizations, we've talked about school-based health and, and preventing violence in the home. I know that eating and food choices have been pretty important, and there was a recent campaign that you did um, with regard to sugar, beverages
1: is that right yes we just did a campaign that's wrapping up um, to raise people's awareness on exactly how much sugar there is in soda in these sports drinks some of the vitamin drinks that are marketed as being very healthy are loaded with sugar some can have 16 20 packets of sugar in them Um, and some surveys show that two-thirds of high school kids are drinking at least one of these beverages a day Um, they're empty calories they don't fill people up so therefore they're not adjusting how much they eat otherwise and the pounds just Back on, and folks aren't even aware um, of that happening. And, and we've been um, really pleasantly surprised by the reaction to that campaign. In fact, in the uh, rotunda of City Hall, we have an exhibit with a, um, a liter of soda and the amount of sugar in it that so people can actually see and there's other sort of different bottles showing how much sugar is usually in these drinks and I'm always amazed every time I walk by there's somebody in there fondling the drinks and Mm -hmm. looking pretty disgusted by what they see so it's been great to see that awareness.
5: Um, Lisa and Julie, my son came home yesterday from lunch and said that he'd had a chocolate milk, he goes to King Middle School, but he said there was high fructose corn syrup in the milk. Have you heard of that?
1: No. I those. will certainly share that. That's um, something we
4: need to work yeah. on, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: we've had a great partnership, the Portland Public Schools, and Ron Adams, who is the food, uh, in charge of the food service there, has been a terrific partner in bringing um, local main foods into the schools and increasing how much healthy food is available. We've used um, a large federal grant that we got, an um, obesity prevention, to buy uh, salad bar equipment for each school. Um, so the schools are doing much better um, than they ever have before, and, but I will um, share that with our guys.
4: And and how do you network with the entire state as far as public health is concerned? I know that in the last few years, we've now become um, a CDC, a Center for Disease Control, and we've been linked in nationally. How does the city of Portland actually link in with what's going on with the state of Maine?
1: Um, I'd say the largest source of our funding is through state contracts. So we are um, accountable to the state through... Let's see, we've probably got about 50 different um, funding sources or 50 different contracts and um, at least a third and probably close to a half are those from the state. So we work very closely in implementing um, often mutually agreed upon objectives um, to further their work. Um, Can you give me some examples of projects that people might be familiar with? Oh, sure. Our school-based health centers are a state grant. Um, The reason why I paused is that so many um, of the state grants are federal pass-through. The state of Maine does not allocate, um, the legislature has not, uh, at least in my tenure, uh, does not allocate Allocate very much money to public health at all. Um, most of the money that is available to us uh, through contracts from the state is is via the fund for healthy Maine, which is tobacco settlement money, which is um, going to be once again severely at risk um, going into the state legislative session. It's been cut back, um, and if that continues to be cut back, that will affect um, that will affect immunizations, that will affect um, maternal and child health, home visiting. These were things that were on the block last year and survived, but um, the governor is intending to. To cut at that fund again, so I certainly want to point out that there's there, I Maine is one of the um, one of the lowest states in the country, um, along with Arkansas, Mississippi, um, in funding state funding provided for public health.
4: So most of the money is coming it's through federal pass through. So that's yep. so the that's the United States government. Yes, and the tobacco funding. Just address that briefly.
1: That is the tobacco settlement from a number of years ago, in which. Um, uh, gosh, a twenty or thirty attorneys general from around the country sued all the major tobacco companies, and so as part of that settlement, the companies are, have to give billions into this national fund, which is then allocated out um, with some formula to the states. And so again, that's that's really the source of funding for public health um, in Maine, and it does it does. Um, support home visiting, school-based healthcare. I believe, certainly immunizations. Um, We do a lot of work around um, substance abuse prevention as well. That comes from the Office of Substance Abuse. Abuse, um, A big topic right now, of course, is bath salts. And so we're trying to get some education out there uh, for folks on, on bath salts. Wait,
4: bath salts is a big topic, and yet I have not heard of this.
1: So... We just have a few more um, minutes left. Just briefly, bath salts. Bath salts is some odd name for a new drug that's out there that is a chemical synthetic drug um, that reminds me of what I used to hear about PCP or angel dust. Um, it has a horrible effect on people. Um, and what we're seeing, we've seen, um, unfortunately, a case or two in our own, our own clinics. We know the ER and the Poison Control Center are seeing significant cases. Bangor has had a huge number of cases, and folks are violent and paranoid, Um, they're very harmful to self, um, dangerous to others, they're very delusional, they have no idea what's going on, they're ripping their clothes off and, you know, they've found a naked woman in a pipe somewhere, you know, a drainage pipe. Um, You know, we had someone come in who was out of his tree, out of history and you know the police are police have to take them down to the E.R. it's it's a it's a dangerous situation Um, so it's certainly something that we want people to be aware of and there's there's more and more information coming out
4: and how can we access this information what's the best way to get information on all of these programs you've just described
1: well um, most of it is available on our website which is um, Portland Maine all spelled out all one word dot gov and
4: and we'll have that also on the Dr. Lisa website for people who would like it and I, I know that you've done so much work. I, I, I have to say that the people who do public health work and wellness are perhaps the least um, recognized. It's a very difficult job, along with social workers. I'm just going to make a shout out to the social workers and the teachers of the world. But, Julie, we so appreciate your coming in and talking to us about what you're doing with public health. It's, it's an amazing resource available to the city of Portland, to the state of Maine, and we wish you all the best. Thank you very much. So I'm here with Genevieve Morgan, wellness editor for Maine Magazine, and she is going to talk a little bit with Richard Maurer, Dr. Richard Mauer, and I'll let her introduce Dr. Mauer. Thank you, Lisa. Um, those of you
5: who read the magazine know that I interviewed Dr. Maurer this month for an article called What's for Dinner? Um, Dr. Maurer earned the uh, doctorate of naturopathic medicine from the National College of Naturopathic Medicine in 1994. He supervises medical residents for the Maine Medical Center CAM Residency Fellowship and he is adjunct faculty at the University of Southern Maine. Dr. Maurer is a member of the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians, the Maine Association of Naturopathic Doctors, and is an active member of Slow Food and the Weston Price Foundation. He lectures regularly, has authored numerous health-related articles, compiles a quarterly newsletter, and is in the process of writing a book on the fat-backed diet. Dr. Maurer specializes in physiologic basis of disease. Through effective diagnosis and treatment, he addresses weight issues, thyroid problems, anemia, pre-diabetes, dig- digestive diseases, and food allergies. He applies the fat back diet principles for many conditions, including ADD and autism. Dr. Maurer is available for teaching and lecturing on natural therapies. He has practiced naturopathic medicine in Maine since 1994 and practices at Coastal Naturopathic Center in Falmouth, Maine, which he also owns. Am I right? Yes. Oh, great. Welcome, Richard. Thank so you, So nice gentlemen. to have you here. It's a pleasure. We had such a good time talking the other day about um, what people should be eating for dinner, and today Lisa and I have been talking about so many things, but our last segment was about local food. And there are so many, uh, so many reasons why we should be eating locally from an economic perspective. But I'm interested in what you ha- have to say about why people should eat local from a health perspective and a scientific perspective.
2: That's a good question. There tends to be a division between what is healthful um, and what is local. Local, we think of farmers. We think of farmer's markets. Historically, though, if we go back to, say, my great-grandmother, there was only local. Local foods um, created the community cuisine and culture that we look at now when we're studying why, what is so healthy about the Mediterranean diet, for, for example. There's a great article, if we go back a few years, to 1972. The Scientific American did an article called Lactose and Lactase. This is studying the enzyme that helps one digest milk sugar. Um, If you were from Sweden or European countries, there was only about a 2% to 10% chance that you would not have enough lactase to digest milk sugar. So you were not lactose intolerant. Whereas they studied people from Thailand and China, and the rates were about 98% lactose intolerant. I use this as a way of um, comparing, not because lactose intolerance is the most important condition I see in my practice, but it's one many people have heard of. And that is just one enzyme that has shown preference to a local, regional way of eating. And there are probably thousands upon thousands of other enzymes in our body that help us Um, help us digest and be healthy eating a local cuisine.
5: Let me just ask you, um, do you think that it is the the environment influences genetics over a long period of time, or that your genetics start to play a role in your preferences or your allergies or the way that your body metabolizes?
2: Um, In that particular study and numerous subsequent studies, the environment really changes the genetic process. Preference.
5: Um, So, what we're really talking about then is you need to understand where you come from and what your culture is in order to figure out what the healthiest foods are for you to eat. But if you move to a region, eating locally is also important. Is that correct? You need to choose. You need to look at your own personal background and then where you live.
2: Yes, and there's there's both genetic reasons for that. But furthermore, I'm, I'm reminded of patients I've seen over the years who are trying to do a raw foods cleansing diet and they're quite gaunt and they're very sick all winter because they're trying to do this based upon a book that was written by some self-proclaimed medical authority living in Southern California. And they're trying to do this diet in March in Maine with perhaps two young children at home and a demanding life schedule. When I tell them they need chicken soup and perhaps marijuana toast, the surprise in the room is palpable.
4: And this is important. I mean, when we talk about locally grown foods and Whole Foods Market does sponsor our locally grown food segment, um, in Chinese medicine, which is the type of medicine that I've integrated into my Western medical practice, there is a very seasonal element to all of this. So when people come in and it's October, they really should be eating winter squash. They shouldn't be eating watermelon grown in Belize or something like that. Is Do you have the same sense from your own practice?
2: I do. There's a uh... Uh, we do. Rec- I do recognize that the human body is extraordinarily adaptable, but those adaptations over time have always r- responded to the seasonal change. We change our enzyme output from our pancreas based upon what foods are locally available, and that's been working that way for thousands and thousands of years.
5: So Richard, do you have a specific example of a patient that you can tell me more about that uh, exemplifies what we're talking about?
2: I do. We could... uh, uh, Frequent themes I see are related to someone's metabolism. Either um, that prediabetes metabolism or the thyroid metabolism. There was a woman who I saw just recently who... um, she was very discouraged. She started training for a triathlon and while training she was gaining weight despite keeping her diet the same. And no small amount of weight obviously her frustration was um, warranted and uh, we ran tests she does have hypothyroid and she has the kind that is most popular common in women and that is the autoimmune hypothyroid it slows the metabolism down whenever there's an event that is stressful to the body, like decreased caloric intake or increased activity. So So, interesting. And this is a wonderful trait. Of course, this is terrific to help a woman survive the potato blight famine in Ireland. Um, I don't think this particular patient was very excited about her ability to survive a difficult time.
5: I know many women who would not like the idea of training for a triathlon and gaining weight. Uh,
2: But understanding it meant that we had to watch her thyroid numbers much more frequently and adjust medications more aggressively and it worked fine and she has a better understanding that she can't feast or famine her exercise she has to stay very consistent with it so her body doesn't perceive it as a stressful one-time event which is what she's ultimately wired for from her long past genetic uh, survival
5: so there we go it is nature and nurture
2: absolutely
5: What I think is interesting about what you're saying is about how people get their information about food. And we spoke a little bit about that in the interview, but I'd like you to speak more to that to our listeners today.
2: Well, that's, um, uh, thank you. I think the dilemma we all have is trying to answer that question, thank you to author Michael Pollan, uh, what to eat? Um, Or as we wrote, uh, as you titled the article, what's for dinner? This question has been asked for ever, <laughs> and the answer has traditionally come from our local community, culture, family, that cuisine aspect of what to eat, and the other one is what's unique about ourselves as individuals. Um, the problem is, since about 1970, in the United States, we've been getting our information from some centralized authority whether that's a government authority or some medical authority. And that centralized authority is trying to come up with one way of treating everybody. One diet for 240 million people. Um, I tend to treat people in my naturopathic medical practice on a one-on-one basis. So to help someone understand themselves as individuals requires uh, interpretation of their past history, their family history, proper interpretation of their blood tests. And I'm ordering blood tests that help me evaluate for what happens when they eat something. So their thyroid tests, their insulin tests, their glucose, they're not getting diabetes perhaps in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, but they're getting migraines and cholesterol problems and high uric acid and uh, conditions that precede diabetes. But it means that they inherited the diabetes gene or that slight hypothyroid gene, the gene that slows your metabolism down every time you decrease your caloric intake. So to help people understand themselves is extremely useful in helping them gauge what a healthy diet is.
4: And I, I, what I like about what you just said was the, that you do treat the individual, and it's one-on-one, but you're talking also about their family history, their cultural history, and I That's know right. that you're a part of the slow food movement and um, sort of getting back to things that are more important about cooking and eating than just the nutrients that are ingested. So the, the family aspect of things, what, how much do you do with that in your practice?
2: I do a great deal. In a general medical practice, I am the true family doctor in a way,
4: right, which I love because I'm also trained in family medicine. So exactly. I, I, I just have to give you a big sort of verbal hug for that, Richard for, for <laughs> focusing on the family.
2: Thank you. And I think we all appreciate when we see a child and an adult and a grandparent all in one family. We are better doctors, we're better diagnosticians. And I think the family benefits by having a better understanding of what they need to do to be at their optimum to be the healthiest.
5: Well, and what I like about being in the room with the two of you is I feel like I'm in the presence of the new future of medicine, which is expansive, which includes m- many different aspects of healthcare and is not specialty based that you both are so expansive in your treatment of people first and disease second. Um, and I just wanted to give you a chance, Richard, to talk about naturopathic medicine for maybe a minute or two and what it, what it is, actually, because I think there are is some misperception about naturopathic medicine, that it's not real medicine. No. But from what you've from what you just told me, those tests sound very clinical. They sound absolutely what a regular, traditionally trained medical doctor would do.
2: Yes. As a naturopathic doctor, I went to um, an undergraduate pre-medical program and then a four-year residency-based naturopathic medical college. Um, in my own practice here since, well, for the past 18 years, I have seen a number of people. I use a great deal of blood tests. The clinical labs here probably know me very well. I interpret them as I think the traditional general practitioner would have. Um, I do a bit more physiologic-based medicine. I'm always trying to understand what makes somebody work. What's happening when they exercise? What's happening when they eat? What is their response to that? And that's my specialty or my basis. And I think naturopathic doctors, as a rule, tend to be more physiologically based. It's a big word, but basically means that they're studying the way people work, what makes them healthiest. And through that, we treat disease by using more natural therapies, diet, nutrition, herbal medicine, and physical medicine.
5: So how can people learn more about your practice and how to get in touch with you and if they want to become a patient? make an appointment. Uh,
2: They can certainly visit our website, Um, coastalnaturalhealth.com. They can call the office. We are Coastal Naturopathic Center in Falmouth, Maine.
5: And are you accepting new patients? We are. Great. And all of this will be available on the Dr. Lisa website, drlisa.org. Thank you so much, Richard, for coming. It's been very insightful.
2: Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Genevieve.
5: To read more about Dr. Richard Maurer's approach to health, lifestyle, and diet, pick up the September edition of Maine Magazine at your local newsstand or visit us at mainmag.com.
0: This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour has been brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Thomas Shepherd of Hersey, Gardner, Shepherd & Eaton an Ameriprise Platinum Financial Services practice in Yarmouth, Maine. Dreams can come true when you take the time to invest in yourself. Learn more at ameripriseadvisors.com and by Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com.
4: Each week on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour, we feature a segment we call Give Back. Give Back is in recognition of the fact that wellness goes far beyond the individual into the family, the community, and the world at large. Each week, we also read a quote from Our Daily Tread, Thoughts for an Inspired Life, a book that was written to raise money for the organization Safe Passage, an organization founded by my late Bowdoin College classmate, Hanley Denning. This week's quote from Our Daily Tread is from John Muir, When we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. And indeed, this goes back to our harvest theme and the idea that we always reap what we sow. On today's Give Back segment, we are interviewing Mark Swan. Mark Swan has been the executive director at Preble Street in downtown Portland since 1991. Preble Street is a nonprofit social service agency offering a wide variety of programs, including a resource center, Teen Center, Florence House, Soup Kitchens, Housing, Employment, Advocacy, and Social Work Services. Mark is a graduate of Bowdoin College and has a Master of Public Policy from the University of Massachusetts. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me. And I have sitting next to me Genevieve Morgan. And what I love is the fact that we have a room full of Bowdoin graduates. Go you yes. Bears.
3: <laughs> the <laughs> Bowdoin Mafia right the here. Bowden.
4: Hey, wait a minute. I don't know about this mafia thing. We need <laughs> we need to be a little bit more careful about that. Um, but I'm really interested in hearing what you've been do- doing for the last 20-something years. What year is this that, you, that you're that you celebrating as the executive 20 director?
3: 20 years. We just, uh, they just surprised me with a little party last week.
4: Mm-hmm. Are you originally years. from Maine, Mark?
3: No, I'm from the Boston area.
4: And what made you get into this business?
3: Um, uh, After I graduated from Bowdoin, I moved back to Boston. I was driving a truck. Uh, I was trying to figure out next steps, and I got involved through volunteering at a couple different programs, uh, including a shelter and a refugee resettlement program, and I went to work at the refugee resettlement program for several years while I got my master's, um, but was still doing some volunteering at this homeless shelter, and some Bowdoin friends of mine who had settled in Portland said there's a job opening up here in Portland at this very cool little agency called Preble Street and they sort of knew the mission, knew the work, knew some board members and said you should look into it so uh, it was just uh, perfect timing for me. I was 28 years old I was looking for a move and a change and uh, 20 years later uh, I'm still there.
4: And 20 years later, we know there's a lot of programs that have been put in place since mm. then. I know that you have a few that you're really interested in talking about. One of them is Lighthouse.
3: Yep, yeah, we've grown a lot uh, and changed a lot. When I started in 91, it was just me and Florence, a uh, wonderful social worker and-
4: uh, And is Florence what the Florence House yes, is we named, named for? we named Florence okay. House
3: after Florence. Mm-hmm. Uh, Florence Young, who's a social worker here in Portland uh, and was had many roles at Preble Street as a staff person, a board member, and a supervisor for students. Um, so it was just Florence and I in the chapel at uh, the corner of Pebble Street and Cumberland Ave. And we had a small soup kitchen. Um, and But we had a great mission and wonderful vision and great board members. And we have just um, taken on new responsibilities and tried some new programs and picked up some programs when other agencies have closed them. So we currently, uh, it's really hard for me to believe, 20 years later, but we've got about 170 employees. We run several different facilities and programs. We have all kinds of interesting partnerships with other organizations. Um, and you so have, we've come a long way.
4: You have, you have. you have. We've come a long way. I was reading on your website that you serve 900 meals daily in eight soup kitchens across the city, which for a total of 480,000 meals a year.
3: Yeah, and that website's a little bit outdated. We're now uh, very sadly uh, breaking records every month, and we're now serving more like 1,100 meals a day in Portland, uh, just in our soup kitchen. That's not our food pantries, but just in the you know prepared meals. So we are uh, unfortunately very, very busy.
4: So that leads into talking about the Maine Hunger Initiative. Is mm-hmm. that related?
3: Yeah, we started that a couple years ago as a result of just increasing numbers and, and also our sense that there was – there really wasn't a statewide voice in terms of advocacy and policy issues related to hunger. So we kind of just raised the bar for ourselves a little bit and said, let's let's um, work on that as advocates and doing research and offering policy solutions to hunger. Because I mean, we're the largest emergency food provider in Maine but that's not the solution Um, pantries and soup kitchens are not the solutions we need to do much more than that and much better than that Um, and that's where public policy comes in whether that's related to the economy jobs housing policy and also um, benefits like food stamps and school lunch programs and school breakfasts and there's a lot of very compelling anti-hunger programs out there offered through the federal government but Maine needs to do better at accessing those and and making those available to people who are experiencing hunger.
4: Now, earlier on in the show, we had um, Julie Alfred Sullivan from the City of Portland's Public Health division, and she talked a little bit about the work that's being done with adverse childhood events and the ending Mm -hmm. um, domestic violence in order that we can have healthier families and healthier people as time goes on. What sort of an impact do you see in your line of work with Preble Street as far as early childhood events um, impacting later on, later lives?
3: Well we've certainly seen in the last couple years with the recession the economic stress in families has just added such a, a a, just another component and level of um, tragedy for families and we're seeing Many many more um, Parents with small children coming in for services. We're seeing a lot more teens uh, Coming into our teen center or the lighthouse shelter and part of it is because a result of um, you know family issues family violence um, neglect issues and just the economic stressors that have kind of trickled down to kids and in, in their lives so uh... the work we're doing at the teen center uh... including with public health uh... the city of portland public health department is a big partner with us um, but we're really trying to um, kind of embrace and surround um, young people when they do end up on the streets uh... everybody talks about runaways an awful lot of these kids we're serving are not runaways they're kind of throwaways Um, they're coming from really dysfunctional families with abuse and violence and as hard as it is to say this sometimes leaving the home Um, was maybe one of their smartest decisions um, to get out of that environment so they're coming in, they're on the street, they're coming into the teen center or staying at the lighthouse shelter and we need to treat those kids um, as if they're in crisis because they are. It's an emergency. We're not just feeding people and we we don't want to maintain their lives on the street. We want to help them get off the street so we have a school program at the teen center run, run by the school department. We have the health clinic day one is there doing substance abuse and mental health counseling Um, we provide meals and drop-in services and but the whole effort is really to again kind of embrace that young person with opportunity with caring adults with consistent um, advice and adults and um, professional social work so it's a big effort on our part the working with the young people
4: Now, I read on your website that you have more than 5,000 volunteers, and I'm hoping that that's also old information, that you have a lot more volunteers now. I know that there are a lot of people in the community who want to be able to help in Mm. some way. What do you usually suggest for people who are interested in giving back to their own community?
3: Uh, The volunteer piece is a critical part of getting our work done, and the majority of the volunteer jobs are in the soup kitchen or the food pantry. It's helping prepare meals, serve meals, clean up after meals, Um, and we're doing, you know, three meals a day at the Resource Center, two meals a day at the Teen Center, although we want to expand that to three, three meals a day at Florence House. We have a food pantry, so there's in terms of scheduling for potential volunteers, there's all kinds of opportunities. It's 365 days a, days a year. We have groups come in, we have corporations, we have churches and temples who come in on a regular basis. But because they're, the sheer volume in, in meals, and in, in number of meals in these different facilities, means we're always looking for volunteers we really are and there's a seasonality to that Um, this is the time of year people are sort of paying a little more attention I think to these issues than in the summer in their school groups and rotary clubs and and that kind of thing um, contacting us but we're very much uh, looking for volunteers right now the best way to do that is to uh, go on our website uh, preblestreet.org and uh, get in touch with a volunteer manager
4: And we'll also link that through the drlisa.org website. So, people who are interested in being in touch, that should be easy enough to do. Great. Do you have
3: the other piece for uh, the community as well is is food drives? Um, We are absolutely um, very concerned about the coming winter and our ability to really meet the demand. As I said, in May, we had the busiest month ever. In you know thirty-five years at Preble Street, and then we surpassed that in June. We surpassed that in July, and we surpassed that. In, so numbers are going up, and it's harder and harder for us to find sources for food. Um, we are you know we work very closely with Hannaford and Shaw's and Whole Foods, and all of you know those places are very generous. But we still are um, dependent on churches to do food drives, school groups, companies um you name it we, we need the help
4: so um we've we've named the theme of this show harvest and mm. harvest is very important for you as well it's not just about harvesting for people who have plenty it's harvesting so that you might be able to give it back to others who don't have quite as much at least not right now right and maybe if you can give it back to them and get them started um, you can change their lives in some way
1: yeah
3: the you know i think to me the word harvest also has a connotation of community and people sort of working together. Um, and that's what we're all about at Preble Street as well. I think for the motivation for me, well, just, just this morning, a uh, Client who I've known for a long time, and he's not homeless. He's not in the shelter Um, He's poor. He he moves in and out of different apartments He comes to us for support and some services and occasionally food and he came up to me this morning with a huge smile on his face To show me his new teeth Uh, And he's been working for a long time to be able to afford uh, a whole new set of dentures Um, And he was so happy Uh, He had such a great smile and uh, Those are the I mean there are little things like that that keep us going um, and we also have uh, recently have had a couple uh, what I call alumni of the Lighthouse Shelter who have gotten in touch with us and wanted to, and has have heard about our our uh, trying to move and have gotten in touch to us to tell their story and how much Lighthouse meant to them. Um, we have a doctor, an emergency room doctor in Baltimore, who's um, telling his story about the Lighthouse Shelter through a screenplay. Um, I had a unsolicited phone call from a, a young man uh, just about two weeks ago, just calling to say just checking in just wanted to say hi i heard about lighthouse you guys were great to me a few years ago i I have a house i have two kids i got a job uh and you know we do we get wonderful feedback and gratitude that's not why we do the work um but it does help it does keep you motivated i've been involved in this work for a long time um because i i I inherently believe that we're all equal and every the value of one person is equal to the value of another person. And I think people living in poverty are often dismissed, dehumanized, forgotten, um, stereotyped. And I actually think those biases and, and that uh, environment right now is is getting harder harsher um, for people who are poor, so I think uh, my intention and and that of the agency I work for. Is to break down some of those barriers, um, provide some education, be advocates, allow for people to have a voice um, to counter some of some of that uh, uh, dialogue that's out there right now that I, I think is pretty unhealthy and, uh, and at times mean spirited and it's not a, it's not good for a community. It's the opposite of harvesting. It's it's dismissing. Um, and I you know that's what we're trying to work towards.
4: Do you have any events upcoming in the next year or so that might be good fundraising opportunities for people to contribute?
3: Well, the the major initiative we're working on right now is to relocate the Lighthouse Shelter. We've been running that shelter. It's the only shelter for um, teenagers in southern Maine, and we've been running it since 2004, and it is in a building that is falling apart Um, we rent it it's in rough shape but more importantly it is full every night Um, or we're really we are literally turning young people away two out of three nights Um, and their options are to go to a very crowded adult shelter um, or sell their body for a place to sleep for a night, um, n- neither very healthy, good choices. So we really need to move the Lighthouse Shelter and expand it and have uh, better space and be able to provide more services there. So we are up to our eyeballs right now and finding a building and, and securing the funds, and it's going to be all private fundraising. Um, so we're out there um, knocking on doors and asking for help. We need to raise $3.5 million. So it's a big effort on our part.
4: So people can go to your website and they can find out more information about the fundraising initiatives and what's going on with the Lighthouse Shelter then.
3: Absolutely, yeah. And we're happy to talk to people or meet with people or give tours or any of that.
4: Great. Well, Mark, thank you so much for coming in today. You're doing great work. Congratulations on 20 years. Keep it up. And uh, we'll see how things are going with the Lighthouse Shelter and your initiatives in the future.
3: Great. Thanks very much for having me.
4: Thank you. Today on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour, we explored the idea of health, wellness, and community connection. This is a frequent topic on our Bountiful blog. Here is one of our recent posts available on bountiful-blog.com. The sunrise has shifted to its late September position. My well-loved gray cardigan has come out of storage. The kids are back in their autumn routine. And this morning we taped the second Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. Our theme was Harvest. We decided upon the harvest theme because that is what we're doing here in Maine, reaping what was earlier this spring sown in our farmers' fields. We are gathering apples and pumpkins, readying ourselves for a new season, and we are contemplating what it means to see the benefit of something that has spent a period of time gestating, something that has spent a period of time in quiet or not-so-quiet growth. Earlier this week, I gave a talk on mindful parenting at our local Whole Foods Market in Portland. Having helped raise nine younger siblings before embarking on the mothering journey with three children of my own, I have a sense of what parenting requires. By no means do I call myself an expert. I have thoughts to share, and that earlier this week is what I did. These thoughts are an ongoing conversation begun when I started writing for Parent and Family Newspaper in 1999. As most of us who helped raise children realize, parenting is the ultimate long-term investment. It is the ultimate example of reaping what we sow. My son, who left this week for a long-term volunteer opportunity in Guatemala, represents one of my life's most rewarding investments. I wish him well on his journey. Wellness, too, is a perfect example of reaping what we sow. If we eat apples and pumpkins, we will feel one way. If we make not-so-healthy food choices, we will feel differently. This applies both in the long and the short term. And food, as discussed in last week's Beginnings show, is but one way of nourishing ourselves. Wellness goes beyond the physical, it is emotional, social, intellectual, and spiritual. As I discussed in a Farmer's Almanac online article recently, feeding ourselves requires more than simply ingesting nutrients, which is why each week we are offering the Dr. Lisa radio hour. We want to help our listeners and ourselves be fed. We are more than willing to sow the seeds and see what grows. We anticipate a bountiful harvest. Thank you for being a part of my world. And I'd like to welcome this week another little individual to my world, the baby of my friend Sarah. Congratulations, Sarah and Park, on your new baby girl. I hope you will all join us again next week on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. May you have a bountiful life. Support
0: for the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast. Is generously provided by Akari Salon, Maine Magazine, Robin Hodgkin of Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, Whole Foods Market, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin from Remax Heritage, and Tom Shepard from Hersey Gardner Shepard and Eaton Prize. The Doctor Lisa Radio Hour and podcast is recorded in downtown Portland at the offices of Maine Magazine on 75 Market Street. It is produced by Kevin Thomas. And Dr. Lisa Belial. Editorial content produced by Chris Cast and Genevieve Morgan. Audio production and original music provided by John C. McCain. For more information on our hosts, production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, visit us at drlisa.org. Tune in every Sunday at 11 a.m. for the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour on WLOB Portland, Maine, 1310 a.m., or streaming wlobradio.com Podcasts are available at drlisa.org